folks. Welcome to episode two of Champs at the Lit, a podcast by two lifelong friends with a shared passion for books. I'm Max, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mark. Say hello to the listening public, Mark. Hello, throngs of people. (laughs) Uh, So today, uh, Mark and I are going to talk about Wolf Hall. It's the uh, first book in Hilary Mantel's three-part series on uh, Thomas Cromwell. Um, It was published in 2009, and it and the second book in the series, Bring Up the Bodies, both of them won the uh, Booker Prize. And the final installment in the series, The Mirror and the Light, was just published in uh, 2020. And it was it was long listed, right, for the Booker Prize. That's right. Yeah. Um, so. And I think she was maybe the first author to win the Booker Prize for two books. I don't know if it's two books like written by the same author or just two books in the same series. Yeah, but. definitely. Like if you write a trilogy and two of them win the Booker Prize and the third gets long listed, that's a pretty uh, yeah. strong endorsement of your writing. Yeah. It definitely says something good about the series. Um. And the book Wolf Hall, it takes place from April 1527 to July 1535, and it charts the rise of Thomas Cromwell to be the uh, chief counselor to Henry VIII. And just a quick show note, um, in addition to uh, Wolf Hall, from time to time I might reference a book by uh, Dyer May McCulloch. He wrote a historical biography of Cromwell called Thomas Cromwell, A Revolutionary Life. Um I will not be referencing it because I did not read it, but I will ask Max about it occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So the first thing we're going to talk about is how uh, Mantell draws upon real events, um, which is something that I think we both think she does exceptionally well. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, you get a pretty good sense for the world that she creates and it feels like it's a pretty good representation of what the world actually was like in the 16th century um i think in particular there are a lot of moments where she'll focus on a particular object or there will be a particular scene that keeps coming up over and over again as a recurring motif um or even sometimes she'll like actually list out like what were the objects in somebody's will and I think all of these things point to what her primary sources probably were that someone documented something, you know, some scene that actually happened or she has a will in front of her or there's a painting of a scene and that uh, I think she's able to use those sources and combine them in a way that really brings the period to life. Yeah, I I agree. I think, you know, for for the entirety of Wolf Hall, for the entirety of the series, you're really only in um, Cromwell's head. Um, and there are scenes that she's able to sort of draw out that are based on historical fact, uh, for example. Um, so there's a scene with uh, George Cavendish, who um, is like an associate of uh, Thomas Wolsey, who's the individual that uh, Thomas Cromwell is working for at the beginning of the book. Hmm. He's like the, at the time, the principal advisor for Henry VIII, and he's on the uh, downswing at the beginning of the book. Anyways, there's a scene, and it comes directly from Cavendish's biography of Thomas Wolsey. It's a scene where Thomas uh, Cromwell is uh, crying and uh, Cavendish comes across him and he remarks about it in his biography of Wolsey because it was such an unusual thing to see. And in that scene, Mantell takes it um, and 
she imagines this whole inner sort of dialogue that's happening in Cromwell's head. And what Cromwell is thinking about is his recently departed uh, wife and children. And he's holding like the prayer book of his wife um, and imagining them. But what she has him say to Cavendish kind of in keeping with his character is that he's crying for himself sort of selfishly right? because the cardinal is going down and he fears that, you know, along with the cardinal, he's also going down. Um, So it's things like that. Um, Also the like coronation of Anne Boleyn, which is another like very well-documented historical event. You know, we know that the English court went to Calais to um, for the coronation of Anne Boleyn. And there's this whole sort of inner dialogue again that Mantell imagines is happening in uh, Cromwell's head. And, you know, there's no documentation for any of this. She creates this all on her own. But it's based on these kind of selected, you know, events that we know did happen. Or like Mark was saying, you know, we know that Cromwell did some legal work. And that's primarily the stuff that sort of survives is the, you know, cases that he was involved with in Mm -hmm. London and sort of financial disputes and things like that. And she takes that out and is able to construct a really, I don't know, like a very three-dimensional character um, of Thomas Cromwell. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's almost challenging to some degree because you, I think it's easy to start just taking what she writes as almost history. Like, you know, of course, that these things aren't totally accurate, but she makes them feel so real. There was, um, I forget who it was, there was some Cambridge historian who was complaining about her books because they were having all these uh, undergrads show up in their first year and say, you know, I want to study English history and the English history that they thought they knew was just Wolf Hall. Um, And, you know, the professors have to say like, well, that's, you know, not history. There are lots of inaccuracies or, you know, things she changed for the book or things that she extrapolated. Also, like, yeah, novels are not the same as performing historical research. Yeah. And and probably, you know, there are lots of sort of open-ended, I guess, historical events, right? And as an author, you sort of have to choose a direction to go. Um, you, you can't sort of have like, uh, well, on the one hand, maybe this happened. <laughs> on the other hand, this happened. You know, in right. the book, yeah. something has to happen. So you, you have to sort of go in a particular direction. Yeah, pick a narrative. And well, I think we, we get into this a little bit later with, um, you know, sort of like the Cromwell Moore division. Some people have written these sorts of books and taken Moore's side, like, you know, A Man for All Seasons is portraying him really well. And then this takes the opposite tack. And there's not an obvious answer as to, you know, who's right or who's wrong. It's just different choices that the authors are making. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, Cromwell is one of those sort of divisive figures, I guess, throughout like the sort of writing of the history for that period, right? There have been historians that have taken a more favorable view of him, you know, some that have thought, well, he just wasn't an important figure at all. Some that thought, you know, he was a malign figure sort of playing mm-hmm. to Henry's worst tendencies. And definitely you know, Mantell falls on the on the side of being more sympathetic for Cromwell. Uh, yeah, and, I mean, I mean, re- reading this book, it's it's almost uh, shocking that you haven't heard of him before. You know, he yeah. seems to be like <laughs> at least as important of a world historical figure as you know various other people. Yeah, as uh, the king himself. You, yeah, as the yeah. king himself, sure. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, prior to this, I don't know that in popular imagination he you know got a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, and before we leave that section, just to sort of briefly mention, I mean, to me, part of what makes this book so interesting is all, I mean, like, like Mark was saying, you know, this isn't true, you know, true history, right? This isn't a a book of nonfiction. It is a book of fiction, 
but she does draw upon all these, you know, sort of historical events, the Protestant Reformation, the sort of power politics of the day between England and France and Spain and the German states and the Pope, um, things like the Pilgrim of, Pilgrim of Grace, which I think doesn't actually occur until the third book in the series, but it's based mm, on yeah. like a you know, historical event, this kind of northern rebellion that uh, took place during Henry's reign. So there's all this stuff that, I don't know, to me as a reader, it really fleshes out the time period. It makes it feel very, you know, and this is maybe kind of dangerous because it makes it feel very present, right? Like, oh, I can, you know, sort of identify with these characters and their motivations and how they're feeling. And, and maybe you end up straying a bit too far into thinking, oh, they're just, you know, they're they're kind of moderns like we are. Right, yeah. They're, when they're really like they me. probably weren't. Yeah. They, um, I mean, I think I told you this at one point that... Uh, it was such a good sort of way of learning history, both what it was like to live in that era and also to actually learn the characters. I mean, I realize they're not all real, but prior to this, you could have had me read a chapter in a textbook about Anne Boleyn and King Henry VIII, and I, you know, I wouldn't have very good recalls to who they are, but now, having read a full novel where their characters and their intrigues and dialogue, um, you know, I, I think I, I know the characters, I could have a, a you know, cogent conversation with someone about what was happening in history at this time. And so it made me want to read all of European history this way. You know, there are so many court intrigues and fascinating things that happen that if someone could just keep writing novels like this, I feel like I could, you know, very enjoyably learn all of European history. Um, and so, I mean, we, we both read uh, one of her other books, which was about the uh, French Revolution. That's right. Uh, and I, I read it sort of in an attempt to, or in the hope that it would be similar and that I would just learn a lot about the French Revolution without having to do much work and be entertained the whole time. Um, and it, like, sort of accomplished that, but we both agreed it, like, wasn't nearly as good and maybe even just, like, wasn't that great in general. It's very long and yeah. didn't have a lot of focus. I mean, in uh, fairness, these are long books too. But, yeah, I think the the key difference is that because you sort of stay in Cromwell's head, you and you spend so much time with him, and I think as the reader, you really do start to identify with his character. Um, whereas with her book about the French Revolution, it's the narrative is split between, I don't know, it's like at least four or five different characters, and um, you don't sort of develop yeah. that same yeah, identity there, there with the main protagonist. There are three main characters. I also think, in fairness, the French Revolution is just more complicated. Like, a lot more happens in a very mm -hmm. short period of time with a I really large right. cast of characters. And I think it's just hard for her to convey all of that stuff in a novel while keeping you interested in the characters. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's something of an aside. I think, I think to your, what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, there's a, there's a danger of interpreting these characters as being too modern. That is, um, I think, yeah, so, something yeah. that, it happens as a result of what she does with Cromwell, that she uh, modernizes him and then works really hard to make you identify with him, particularly in the early books. I think the, the way in which she achieves the sort of having you as the reader identify with the character of Cromwell, it's really exemplified by a couple, well, one particular scene and then also something that I think she does with the, with the first chapter of her book. Um, so first, in the first chapter of the book, you're, you're spending time with the child uh, well, he's like 12, maybe, mm -hmm. in the first chapter. And the way he's sort of portrayed is like a, he's kind of like a lovable, like rogue or ruffian, right? And the reason he free, flees England is because his father is uh, abusive. 
Um, yeah, he's one of those like you know mischievous kids who's running around the neighborhood and like getting into trouble, like not awful trouble, but yeah. you know he comes from a bad home and so he spends a lot of time outside and he'll like you know pilfer a pie or something. It's it's very uh, um, uh, like Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn kind of yeah. vibe. Yeah, um, and you know that's sort of the the gloss that's given on things in the, in the first chapter of the first book, uh, and it's only later. I believe in the third book that you sort of revisit that scene, um, and what you learn is that <laughs> he actually murdered another boy, uh, and really that's the reason why he has to flee England, and probably the reason why his father was beating him up uh, at the beginning of the first book. Yeah. Um, and you know that just you know it totally throws a different sort of gloss on the character of Thomas Cromwell if she had led with that scene in book one chapter one yeah and it, it's or, funny or how, it, how it evolves because he'll he'll remember things from his childhood over time and the memories get kind of progressively darker mm-hmm. and she also does all this foreshadowing right of like he's got the face of a murderer mm-hmm. and you know that there are all these things that sort of hint at him being a bad guy but in the first book it feels like oh people just think he's this way because he came from a rough town because he's a commoner uh, because of, you know, he was a soldier and he kind of is just like a big, strong, angry looking guy. Um, but then by the third book, yeah, there's this sort of reveal that, no, actually, this is this was how he got his start. And it's it's not clear how much of, you know, we've, we've been living his internal life with him. And for most of the most part, he seems pretty ethical, mm-hmm. uh, both on, you know, in his own terms, but from a modern perspective. And then, yeah, in the third book, it starts being kind of called into question. He makes worse decisions or less ethical decisions. And then also we find out that, yeah, his, his origin story is, uh, yeah, a murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also stylistically, something that Mantel does, and she does this pretty early on in um, Wolf Hall, is there's a particular scene where Cromwell, um, he's leaving his wife for the day to go out and, you know, do the work that he's got to do about town. Um, and as he's like kind of going down the stairs, he feels like he sees that she, he thinks that she's like following him down the stairs sort of thing. Like he catches a glimpse of her. Mm -hmm. And then later when he returns during the day, he finds out, um, that his wife died in between when he said goodbye to her in the morning and when he returns home at night. And for basically the entire book, the way it's told, it's told, um, in third person, um, talking about, you know. Cromwell and there's an omniscient narrator that's inside his head um, but then in this particular scene and I, and I believe it happens in a few other places in in her books it switches to a second person narrator and she goes uh, you so when he returns home the line is there's something wrong when you arrive home at dusk mm-hmm. and to me that's you know something that she does as a writer to really put you, the reader, inside Cromwell's shoes, because it's suddenly like, you know, you are Cromwell experiencing this traumatic event. Yeah, the other other thing that's notable that confused me a little bit at first is she will just refer to Cromwell as he, like, uh, Mm -hmm. without it being obvious that the pronoun should necessarily refer to to Cromwell. But then she does it so often over the course of the book that you just start taking it as given that if there is a generic he, it has to be Cromwell. And yeah, but both of these things... Like just really emphasize that like we are living with Cromwell. We are inside of his head. We sort of are him. 
just take it as given that if anybody's being talked about, it's going to be Cromwell. Mm-hmm. I think the narrative never goes anywhere else other than him, right? Yeah, I uh, think so. Yeah. I, I forget what the term for, you know, the various sort of omniscience or not omniscience or whatever the narrator is. But, uh, yeah, we, we only get his internal world and we don't hear about events except for the ones he directly experiences. Right. Something that you brought up, Mark, in our earlier discussions <laughs> of this book, which we may or may not have had, um, is that, uh, you know, you think Cromwell's his sort of his sentiments, um, they're a bit too modern. Yeah. And I think like this is this is thrown into relief by the other people he interacts with that, mm-hmm. you know, he'll sort of pass judgment on like, oh, these silly people, don't they realize that like women are smart, too? Or like, oh, man, all these superstitious people. And I, I'm, I'm torn about, you know, whether or not I think this is a good thing. Um, I think it is too modern to be historically accurate. And you lose maybe some of what you would gain from living inside the head of someone in the 16th century, right? Like there's a certain amount of, um, I don't know, cultural experience that you would get by like really digging in. Uh, on the other hand, I think he's a useful proxy for the modern reader to like, walk around in a very unusual world and the assumptions they make about life and society and, you know, metaphysical reality. And it's much more digestible as a modern reader for him to be your like, uh, intermediary. So you don't have to, yeah, directly live in the head of a person who thinks women like are subhuman or something. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's like, I feel like it's something that's worth noting as you read it so that you don't come away with the idea, A, that like Cromwell actually was this modern because I'm I'm skeptical that he is like conveniently just that much more advanced than everyone else uh, he's hanging out with, but also that you don't assume that, yeah, that's how people were that. I mean, yeah, like like they were very sexist. They were very racist. They, you know, like sort of they're very classist. They're, you know, there are all these sort of prejudices and, uh, you know, yeah problems with how they approach the world that he sidesteps Uh, along a similar vein right there's also this idea that (laughs) Cromwell does really seem to have basically every useful skill yeah he's got got all the business skills the legal and illicit right um he knows basically all the useful languages he's perfected the memory palace uh (laughs) technique yeah, he has this like prodigious memory where he can just like quote texts at length. He can quote the Bible. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone sort of takes as given at some point that he has the Bible memorized. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also is supposed to be extremely good at math, right? He can just, you know, add all these sums in his head that ordinary mm-hmm. people can't do. Um, and then, yeah. The, yeah. The, there's a part early on where she's describing, she gives us like paragraph description of like how he presents to the world or how he's sort of seen in the world, and it's his speech is low and rapid, his manner assured. He's at home in courtyard or waterfront, bishop's palace or inn yard. He can draft a contract, train a falcon, stop a street fight, furnish a house, and fix a jury. And it goes on and on, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you sort of get to feel like, yeah, basically he can do literally anything. He is better mm-hmm. than everyone at most things, or, you know, yeah, is, is better than everyone at like any given three things. Um, and I don't know, I, again, I'm, I'm torn about this on the one hand, I'm like a sucker for these types of characters, the, you know, Count of Monte Cristo or Jason Bourne or whatever it is that, you know, they just have this immense talent and, and, uh, all these abilities, right. uh, that allow them to rise through the ranks or be successful by virtue of their hard work and, you know, natural intellectual or physical prowess. On the other hand, um, I think it can be a little too convenient 
to resolve a lot of issues to have your protagonist just be like super good at everything. Right. Uh, and it, yeah, I imagine, I mean, I have questions about how historically accurate it is. Maybe it is historically accurate. I, I mean, I'd like it to be, that'd be really cool. Uh, that, you know, he was like one of the best archers. It's just like every time he like shows up to do something you haven't seen him do before. Like if he was to like sit down at a chessboard, it would just <laughs> be taken as given that he would turn out to be an incredibly good chess player. And he did play chess at a certain point. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just any, anything he puts, you know, he, he designs his house. He like is a munitions expert. He, uh, yeah, speaks sort of every, every language that seems to come up in his life. Uh, I don't yeah. know. It's yeah, it's like I, it's it gets to a point where it's like a little much. It's like you he could be bad at chess. I don't know. Like you know he could not be an amazing archer. Uh, yeah, I don't know. One one sort of wonders. You know, you know, Mantel must have been sort of collecting like references to you know even just sort of minor references that you know he knew certain languages, or um, you know the fact that he spent time abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and basically giving him skills that she thinks he might have picked up. But again, there's no, I don't, you know, for a lot of these things, there's no real hard evidence. Like, for example, you know, did he actually master the, like, memory palace technique? I doubt that there's any, like, hard evidence, right. <laughs> you know, that he did that. Um, yeah. But yeah, she, she does seem to sort of err on the side of, well, I'll, I'll build him up as much of a character. And that's actually sort of what I was wondering is, you know, it is... She is sort of, I guess, building him up, right? I mean, the mm. first book is really his rise. Yeah. Um, maybe the first and the second book. And then the third book, you do get to his fall. And that's, you know, ultimately there is a fall at the end of these books. Um, yeah. And it is sort of that, like, hubris that he builds up in book one and book two, where he's just, um, you know, he's using all these skills that he's gathered up to, um, you right. know, up he, to the he, point he of the He flies too of close to the sun. He yeah. overdoes it. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's also everyone else he's interacting with for the most part are nobles, you know, like his his arch enemy in book two is like Anne Boleyn, who is, you know, uh, the queen. So mm-hmm. um, it feels I don't know what came to mind was that like Batman needs lots of special skills <laughs> to make up for the fact that he has no supernatural abilities. Right. If he's going to fight Superman or, you know, Wonder Woman or whoever else he's fighting um, and that similarly you know, uh, Cromwell doesn't have noble birth. He has no family fortune to fall back on. He has no name. He has no title. Um, and so in order for him to reasonably compete with all these people who have, you know, start life with all of these privileges, he has to have a bunch of, like, there there has to be some way for him to have gotten where he was. And the answer is that he's incredibly smart. And yeah, he's got to be like super competent as compared to say like the, the dukes um norfolk and suffolk who because they're nobles they can sort of be bumbling and sort of make significant mistakes but they can still yeah. like, sort of survive because they have um uh, you know they have titles and right uh, and yeah i mean it's almost comical how they're portrayed like uh for the most part cromwell's like there, there are a few characters but it seems like the average character at court like isn't that bright Maybe, maybe the Dukes in particular, but they don't seem to understand how things work. They keep having to go to Cromwell to ask him, like, wait, can we do this? Because he's the lawyer. He knows how mm-hmm. things actually work in the real world. Um, and so whenever they actually need to do something, he's the one who can both tell them if it's possible, and then he's the one who can figure out how to get it done, whether it's, yeah, fixing a jury or building a house or, you know, uh, like negotiating your debt down with some merchant or mm-hmm. uh, you know, just like all the things. Yeah, I'm like one of the few characters that, 
uh, might be his sort of intellectual intellectual equals like a Thomas More, but you know in in Mantell's telling of uh, <laughs> of this history, you know More is just a very unlikable character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he comes uh, off pretty badly. And mm-hmm. also, like I think More is a little bit more believable in that he's supposed to be very scholarly and intellectual, but he's not going to be like the strongest man in every room he walks into which mm-hmm. is sort of how Tom, like Cromwell comes across, right? It's like in any given room, he's the guy who's the scariest and is most likely to be able to like beat you up or kill you. And it's that kind of combination of like all the different possible, you know, uh, abilities that makes me, I don't know. Uh, I feel like maybe just she went too far. Right? Yeah, I think it was a little overdone. <laughs> um, yeah. That said, it also makes him a really cool person to learn about because even if that's exaggerated, the kernel of truth seems to be that he was very exceptional in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. um, which makes him, yeah, a very fascinating person to, like, spend time with and to learn about. Yeah, yeah, definitely so. Um, So let's talk a bit about how uh, Mantell chooses to portray Henry VIII. Yeah, so I think this is is one of the ones where this is someone else who is uh, kind of above average in his various capacities that you know he's portrayed also sort of you know has a great deal of physical prowess he's very tall very broad Mm -hmm. and then he also turns out to be quite bright and the first time Cromwell interacts with him he's kind of struck by how how quick Henry's mind is Mm -hmm. uh and that was it's very surprising to me because you know I mean prior reading this I don't really know anything about Henry VIII but what I did know was that I've seen the pictures I mean he looks like a uh obese man who chases lots of women and then gets upset and like kills them when they don't have a male son and so like my mental image of him was pretty different from how she portrays him yeah yeah um yeah i think sort of the potted history that you might learn about henry VIII, right is that he was kind of a lustful fool who uh split the church or split england off from the church and beheaded a bunch of his wives right um, <laughs> and yeah, Mantel definitely takes, uh, you know, portrays him as being a pretty sharp political actor, um, and as really controlling things in his court. Um, yeah, he he and, really and knows what's going a, on. Plays people off of each other. Mm-hmm. He's very savvy. Yeah, um, but there's maybe a question of which is sort of an interesting detail. Is like after I can't remember if it's in the first book or the second book, if it's after he takes a fall in the uh, list and uh, jousting, mm-hmm. he has this sort of traumatic. Um, I mean, he has like where of course concussion. Thomas Cromwell revives right, him saves the with day. his with his <laughs> yeah hitherto unbeknown uh, EMT skills. That's that's right. Uh, but point being is that I think Crom- Mantell is maybe suggesting that it was sort of a that like sort of traumatic like almost brain injury that might have like in a way sent henry down um into a sort of like more tyrannical path interesting i don't know that i recall that as a uh i mean was it a i guess it was a brain injury yeah i mean because he's like out cold like at the time everybody basically everybody around him thinks that he's dead and there are sure. also these very, I mean, it's almost like comic, like, you know, can you touch the body of a king? And uh, yeah, no one really knows what <laughs> you know, protocol that sort is. Of thing. Right. And there's at, like, at what point is he officially dead and you, you know, sort right. of initiate and, succession rights? Yeah. There's a noble, I can't remember if it's like Suffolk or Norfolk who's saying, you know, now I'm king, I'm king now, you know. And, 
<laughs> I'm going to make the, the, you know, the decisions. Um, yeah. It reminds me a little bit of Death of Stalin, the recent comedy, if anybody's seen that. It's a similar kind of like all the people right below him now jockeying for power and yeah, right. in a comical way. Right. Um, but that was, that was a side, that was a sidebar. I'm sorry. Usually I'm laser focused on uh, the talking points. <laughs> um, but let's also talk about this other perhaps uh, surprising um, aspect to uh, Henry's character, or at least the way in which Mantell portrays it. And that's the fact that he seems pretty universally beloved, right? Yeah, I think this is kind of the counterpoint to my critique of Cromwell being too modern. This is one of the ways in which he feels distinctly unmodern. And it mm-hmm. get, like that's what makes it hard for me to wrap my head around. Um, is that, you know, in most respects, yeah, he's, he has a very modern perspective on life, but despite living in his head, we don't get to see him criticize or think badly about Henry very often. Mm -hmm. Um, like, I mean, there are points where he just does dumb things and there are points where it's like, well, it'd probably be better if someone else was King. Like I would be a better (laughs) King. Like that is a thought that would have crossed my mind if I was Oliver or Thomas Cromwell. Uh, and it doesn't seem to cross his mind. Um, like, yeah, he, he, it's true that he's portrayed as a savvy actor and that he's pretty bright. On the other hand, the kernel of truth that like he's chasing women and will just kind of do things that will rupture his kingdom without a whole lot of forethought or regard is also kind of true. And so there are a lot of moments where he's, he's just behaving poorly and nobody can really control him. And they'll, they'll sort of talk about how they can you know maneuver around him or encourage him or whatever but it always comes with this like either implicitly or often explicitly stated assumption of like well he cannot do any wrong he is you know like he is like god's gift to man and the you know (laughs) our divinely appointed king and the most we should do is we should encourage our sovereign to listen to his better nature or whatever yeah Yeah. um so we we had sort of talked about this and i don't know if these are like theories or some counterpoints that I have to that. So, you know, I think for, <laughs> I think the most revealing, uh, or one of the, one of the more revealing sort of exchanges that Cromwell has about, um, about Henry's, I think it's like one of his wards or maybe his son who's actually sort of expressing those, like kind of those opinions that you're talking yeah. like, you know, maybe, maybe Henry yeah. isn't the right. Yeah. The best it's like, it's like you have. get a brief hint of initial <laughs> criticism and it gets quashed. Yeah. But you know, for Cromwell, he, what he says is, you know, you got to choose your prince. Um, and he, he also, he compares Henry to like the Spanish King and the French King. Um, and you know, for him, Henry is, you know, way better than the other Onyx sort of on offer. Yeah. Um, and that ultimately, you know, you have to sort of follow the man in charge. And then I think there's also this this sort of undercurrent for the book, um, and that's the, the pretty recent history, I mean, at the time, recent history of the sort of War of the Roses, the, the, the English Civil War between the Yorkists and the Lancastrians. And you can maybe forget that, like, uh, Henry's only the second in the Tudor line um, following, you know, his father who established the sort of Tudor dynasty. Um, and that was after decades of really bloody civil war uh, in England. And just so your as thought like, is that they're like self-censoring in a bid for unity? Yeah, yeah. Or sort of like, uh, you know, to sort of openly oppose the king 
Like, A, it's dangerous because Henry, you know, in part because he's kind of sensitive to begin with, but also because, right. you know, his sort of authority to rule is kind of tenuous. Sort of his claim to the throne is yeah. sort of tenuous. Like, there are and other people in treason. the land. Like, they will kill right. you for <laughs> saying treasonous <laughs> things, which right. can be construed pretty broadly. Yeah, and, you know, there, there are other families. There are older families. There are families that might have a better claim to the throne than Henry. So, you know, anybody that could, you know, that even sort of vaguely openly suggests that maybe the king shouldn't be in charge um, yeah, is playing a very fair. dangerous game. I just like, it's it's just crazy to me that nobody ever kind of like breaks character in a sense or like they, they it's, it's sort of, you know, emperor's no clothes kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so Rafe, one of his, uh, you know, mentors, protégés, basically, mm-hmm. you know, sort of his godson. It's kind of war. Uh, yeah, comes to him and, yeah, expresses some initial criticism. And I think those would all be reasonable answers of, like, be careful of treason <laughs> or, like, you know, like, we need to maintain unity. But that's not the answer. The answer is, like, no, he's actually a really good guy and you need to remember that. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's just weird to me, like, at no point, like, surely there must be some kind of side conversation between people who can trust each other somewhere being like, but, yeah, he's, like, actually a little out there. Yeah. Like, but yeah, yeah he good. made an awful decision, or I don't know. And, and in fairness, it's not—it's not universal. Uh, you know, he does have enemies, enemies who do try to figure That's out right. ways to get around him, That's take right. him off the throne. People make fun That's of right. his impotence in in uh, the bedroom, mm-hmm. um, and so it's—it's it's not as though there are never criticisms. But the people who are on his side never seem to criticize him, and it's—it's—it's it's, it's just surprising to me they never have a stray thought or comment or side conversation about like, yes, he like this is our guy. But, like, man, is he annoying sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think you do have a point, a point there. Um, but, again, maybe, you know, for as much as we sort of criticize Mantel for maybe making Cromwell too modern, you know, this is a good sort of counterbalance to, for sure. uh, to that aspect of his character and also to, you know, the other characters that are sort of around the king, that there is still this idea of, well, um, you know, the king has a right to govern. Um, and we should follow him, even if it seems like he's making. Yeah, and I think decisions. it is. You know, they do have a sense of divine right of kings. It's that you know, mm-hmm. God made this guy king. We have no ability to question it. If there was any way to question it, it would just be like you said to choose like a Spanish or a French king, and they're clearly worse. And so, you right. know, the or, it, or it, to, it's, to risk. It's not you only know. treason, but it's like borderline blasphemy, right? To say yeah. that this is not the right guy to be king, mm-hmm. um, and. You know, even though Cromwell is like pretty modern and less superstitious than the others, um, yeah. and she doesn't and, spend and, a lot of time on his faith, but makes it clear that he is deeply religious. Um, and yeah. so, you and know. and he does have some like I would call them like proto Republican like feelings or leanings. There's there's a part where he's he's actually talking to Henry, and he's basically giving him the spiel that like uh, the will of the people it's expressed through Parliament. And the king derives his uh, um, kingship, you know, through through Parliament, mm-hmm. <laughs> which sort of represents the people. And it's actually like it's in part for that kind of sentiment that Cromwell, at the end of the third book, gets condemned for yeah. sort of having these, uh, you know, proto-Republican um, leanings. Yes, yeah, that's true. But again, you know, at the end of the day, uh, like Mark said, he really doesn't question Henry's ultimately Henry's right to be king. And he does a lot to, you know, strengthen his authority and his sort yes. of control over his country. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's move on to Thomas More. So this is another character that uh, Mantell chooses to depict. And again, you know, 
you have to, as an author, you know, writing a book, you, you sort of have to make a decision on how am I going to portray these characters. Um, and you can't, uh, unlike, uh, you know, a piece of historical writing, you can't really have the, you know, on the one hand this and on the other hand that. Um, so yeah, Mark, talk a bit about how Moore is depicted in Mantell's yeah. book versus, say, something like A Man for All Seasons. Yeah, I mean, in in A Man for All Seasons, he's uh, he's the protagonist. He's a martyr. He's mm-hmm. uh, you know standing up for his principles, and you get that in this version as well. It's it is true that he is standing up for his principles, and that Cromwell is taking a more pragmatic approach, which kind of means being less strict about his principles. But instead yeah. of that coming across as like a noble thing to do, he just comes off as kind of a prick. Yeah, where... or kind of infuriating. It's like, uh, I, I do think that there's a way in which Mantell makes it clear that like Cromwell respects more and yes. like sort of respects that he's a principled individual. He's one of the few, uh, few people like inside Henry's inner circle that's unwilling to basically ex- accede, accede to... Um, not only his divorce from Catherine, but um, making himself the head of the uh, church in England through something called the Act of Supremacy, which was this like historical event. Yeah, I mean, and, to, like, and he sort of, the Pope is kind of a crazy thing to do, right? <laughs> but you know, for 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 more, as much as he respects it, he also is he's in, infuriated by More's inflexibility, and he feels like you know More is making a martyr of himself when if he was a bit more flexible you know, he could survive and he, he doesn't right. have to, right. Uh, he doesn't and have so, to go down. Yeah. I mean, and, and to some degree, right. Yeah. That is an acknowledgement that he is standing up for his principles. Um, but yeah, it feels very non-pragmatic because then he can't continue to fight the good fight or whatever. He's just going to die and no longer contribute to the causes he cares about. Um, and it, it starts to feel a little bit like he's just being really technical. You know, he's like, well, technically, like, this is what the letter of the law says. And like, I can't deviate from it at all. Um, And it just gets a little frustrating. And he also, on a personal level, is just not a very nice person, right? He (laughs) he, um, beats, you get to watch him beat a serving boy. Um, He is depicted as a torturer um, Mm -hmm. who seems to enjoy the torture as long as they're infidels, right? Or I don't know what he calls them. Uh, Heretics. Heretics, yeah. Uh, So as, as, as long as they're people who he thinks are you know, sort of sanctioned by God, uh, then he can go after them and torture them and have fun with it. And that's all a good thing. Um, I think his, his behavior toward his wife is particularly bad that he'll, she doesn't speak, what is it, Greek? And so yeah. he'll have conversations with everyone else in Greek while she's at the table and like yeah, make fun Greek of her ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think what you, what you said about torture. So this is something that you sort of found out after the fact you went and, um, research a bit more about Thomas yeah. Moore and, and you you basically think that the the allegations that Moore was a torturer that they come from a like partisan book that was written, you know, well after the fact and that there really isn't much in the way of you know, there isn't very good evidence that he was actually a torturer. Yeah, the evidence all comes from this one book that was written by a guy who was pretty young when any of these events would have happened. So he was relying on hearsay, and he was in a camp that was very pro-Church of England, very anti-Thomas More. And so, you know, he sort of goes to the more senior people in the movement, and they all say, oh, yeah, he was a terrible guy. He tortured people. And he writes that down. And I think for a while that was considered, uh, you know, historically accurate. But at this point, historians say there isn't, 
you know, beyond that, there's no concrete evidence that he ever tortured anyone. And so I think the consensus is we don't think he's a torturer. Um, like beating, beating a serving boy is certainly plausible. I yeah. think probably a lot of people did that. Frankly, Cromwell probably did that. We just, you know, in this version of the tale, he's a good guy. And so we don't get to see him do that. Right. Uh, and, but... and there, there are even instances, right, where Cromwell is like, <laughs> you know, there's a specific instance where Cromwell, um, he's uh, basically pretending, pretending he's, he's making it seem like he might torture somebody. But of course, you know, in the end, what, what the, the like torture apparatus, it's like Christmas decorations that he's right. pretending, yeah. you know, he's going to use. She sort of sets it up in a way where you can see, oh, I can see how 30 years from now people will accuse him of torture and it'll seem <laughs> believable, but it's not believable. Right. I mean, I don't know if that actually exists in the historical record, but it's almost like she feels like she has something to explain away. And that, you know, we sort of go through this song of, and dance of, you know, well, it wasn't actually torture, but they thought it was torture because it looked a lot like Iraq, but it wasn't Iraq. It was a big, right. you know, Christmas star. Uh, right. And yeah, that uh, he's he's in fact a good person. So I guess the, the, the sort of question that arises is, okay, maybe Mantel wasn't aware that these allegations weren't all that firm, but probably she, you know, probably she was aware. So, sure. you know, why, why did she make that decision to depict more as like a torturer, like a generally bad guy, or at least like an unpleasant person um, versus yeah, I mean, how she depicts uh, Cromwell? You well, know, yeah, I mean, he, he needs an adversary, right, in each book. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, we talked about this, that he's uh, more as his adversary in book one, that they're butting heads and, you know, kind of leading opposing factions and duking it out in the court and Cromwell wins. Mm -hmm. And that the ending is... Yeah, the the death of Thomas More, the execution, mm -hmm. and it's a big moment of triumph for Cromwell. And then book two, and Boleyn is his uh, enemy, and again, it's sort of this epic battle between the two, you know, at a more advanced senior level than uh, with More, because she's mm -hmm. the queen and he's now um, sort of second to the king in power in, in the land. Right. And then that book ends with her execution, and then, yeah, book three, there isn't anybody, it's just more or less himself he's just right. now yeah, he, there's no one to stop him and he overreaches yeah he doesn't have a foil in the third book um yeah. and yeah i sort of wonder you know was that a conscious decision on mantel's part that um you know i'll sort of set up this dichotomy between Moore and cromwell in the first book um and it's going to end with Moore's, i guess you know defeat and of course this execution and then that will lead into the second book you know where it's Anne Boleyn versus cromwell and by the time by the third book, um, you know, by the end of the third book, I think Cromwell's just a much less sympathetic character. You know, he's become much more sort of, or at least it seems like he's really just out for more power um, yeah. and for more influence. Um, and yeah, again, it really seems it, to have gone to his head. Yeah. And it sort of goes back to the way in which, you know, she starts from book one depicting, you know, his sort of troubled childhood and the reasons that he had to flee England initially and then sort of retells that same story in the third book with a yeah. with a very different. Um... Yeah, I think I think it's brilliantly done, even just the structure of having each each book end with a, an execution of having. Yeah, very clear foils in one and two and then three, there's no foil. And it's like he was, you know, pushing really hard against a wall. The wall gets removed and he just keeps going until somebody realizes he's gone too far and the king ends it mm -hmm. um and yeah. go ahead uh i was just gonna say let's let's talk a little bit about um 
I guess the final, you know, we've talked about her portrayal of, of, of Henry. We've talked about Thomas More. Um, let's talk a little bit about her portrayal of Anne Boleyn. Um, this is another, you know, really central character to all of the books. Um, I mean, some of the stuff we're going to talk about, it's, it's more in Bring Up the Bodies, the second book. Um, but this whole, the whole sort of dynamic between Anne Boleyn and Thomas Cromwell, it begins in the first book. And basically, they form a kind of alliance, right, mm -hmm. to, to put her on the throne in the first book. And that's, you know, that's sort of one of the uh, um, one of the high points of that book for both Cromwell and for Anne Boleyn is when right. she's crowned queen. And right. she, you know, she wants power and he wants to make Henry happy mm -hmm. by getting him a wife who is not Catherine of Aragon or mm -hmm. Anne of Aragon, Catherine, Catherine, yeah, Catherine of Aragon. Either. Um, you know, so he sort of uses his legal maneuvering and theological mm -hmm. interpretation to get Henry out of a marriage that shouldn't, you know, like shouldn't be possible, but mm -hmm. managed to get him out of marriage and then into another marriage with a woman that he had fallen in love with. And so that puts Cromwell in Henry's very good graces mm -hmm. and gets him a lot of political rewards. And then obviously she ends up as queen, which gives her a lot of power and, you know, enriches her and her family. Mm -hmm. Um, so they have, uh, yeah, mutual interests. But then by book two, they no longer have mutual interests. And uh, yeah, they, they, they both sort of each want power and she thinks that he's a threat and she wants to get rid of him. And it, it ultimately starts to feel like his survival is at stake, right? That it's either him or her. She started yeah. it, but he has to end it. Otherwise, he will end. Yeah, and they're both, they're both kind of outsiders to the court, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, you know, she's from a noble family, but not like an especially important noble family and obviously like the idea that Henry would um, dissolve his marriage with Catherine um, who has a like claim to the Spanish crown basically um, in order to marry basically a nobody like Anne Boleyn um, for I think a lot of people like in the day and like I guess you know, historians think about it that's you know if anything that's what really makes it like you know, a sort of remarkable decision. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she, I think, loses out partly because she doesn't have a son, right? It's just bad luck. Mm -hmm. um, partly yeah, because definitely. Henry is just kind of a fickle uh, lover, right? That yeah. he pretty and, quickly moves on to other women and that he wants other women. And, you know, so she gets abandoned in a way that Cromwell won't as long as Cromwell is useful. And mm -hmm. Cromwell worked very hard to always be very useful. Yeah, uh, you yeah, know, he becomes so. basically indispensable. Yeah, uh, and then uh, I think I think Cromwell also just does a better job of charming people, right? I mean, this is something that mm -hmm. is I, I think I buy as one of his you know sort of special abilities, um, and that that she spends a lot of time on is that because he grew up as a commoner, as the son of a smith, he can relate to people of every class of society, and so he's very charming, and he gets to make friends with you know the servants at court and the ladies in waiting, mm -hmm. and you know Including he's good friends with the king. <laughs> yeah. And he, him, he yeah, yeah he, he just sort of knows everybody and, mm -hmm. and is able to, you know, gather intelligence and maneuver in a way that she just can't, can't equal. Yeah, she becomes more and more isolated, particularly as the second book goes on, mm -hmm. whereas he's still sort of expanding his um, areas of influence. Right. Even though, you know, he, he has enemies as well, enemies which ultimately, you know, bring about his downfall too. Right. Um, so I guess the, one of the, one of the questions that we had, Mark specifically had, right, is this idea of was Anne Boleyn sort of actually guilty of her crimes or was she erroneously convicted? 
And uh, Mark, what what did you what were you kind of initially thinking, and then did your yeah? Thinking I think change? I mean this this may just be me uh, not being a very perceptive reader. That uh, I I think initially with the accusations against her, kind of took them at face value that she had done all these things. Um, you know, she slept with a whole bunch of other people at court. She slept with her brother. I was like, wow, that's crazy. In the sense that like I can't <laughs> believe something like this happened in history. Not in the sense of like wow, that's crazy. Maybe somebody invented this. Um, Because it it seemed like, you know, various of the, you know, there were these confessions that came out. Um, No one really seemed to ever express doubt about her guilt. Um, The people who were accused don't really defend themselves and don't spend time saying like, of course, this is preposterous. We didn't do this. And so I guess, yeah, I mean, I, I was just not perceptive enough, but I didn't feel like I got enough signals that this was her being railroaded, uh, to realize that. Um, and so my question was how, I mean, obviously they do seem like very extreme behaviors. And so my question was how, how far is it exaggerated? Do we think this was totally made up or, um, you know, how much, how much truth is there in the accusations that ultimately convicted her? Right. Yeah. And I guess my, my take on this is, um, so for, for me, it, it seemed pretty clear that there were that these were trumped up charges kind of from the beginning and that's sort of how mantel tells it um so i think you know one could say you know maybe for example she was being promiscuous at the french court um, before she had a relationship with henry um you know maybe she had a relationship with this guy thomas wyatt right um who, who manages to escape any kind of consequences right. because of Cromwell's influence. He's, yeah. he, he's the one guy who probably yeah. did sleep with her and then gets yeah. off. He's basically another ward of Thomas Cromwell's. Right. Um, but, you know, the, this idea was she sleeping with, you know, Henry's entire privy chamber, which basically ends up being, you know, what the accusations are, that it's like everybody close to Henry, including uh, Anne Boleyn's brother, you know, slept with her. Right. Um, that probably isn't true. And also the sort of the impetus for this kind of entire investigation is the confession of uh, Mark, this uh, singer who is sort of part of Amberlynn's retinue. Initially at the beginning of the uh, book, he's part of uh, Thomas Wolsey's retinue and then he joins Amberlynn. Um, and he's the individual that <laughs> Mantell has uh, Cromwell threaten torture you know, through uh, what ends up being Christmas decorations, but, you know, very much looks like, uh, you know, some kind of rack or something. Um, And to me, it seemed, you know, pretty obvious that, like, really Cromwell just, you know, scares the bejesus out of Mark, and Mark confesses, like, leading questions. I don't know. (laughs) Like, Mark had already been himself boasting that he had slept with the queen, right? Sure, boasting. Um, yeah. And so then Cromwell shows up and is like, you know, brings him in front of like some very serious people in a very serious setting and says, did you sleep with the queen? And the kid maintains it. And so it's like, well, at that point, you know, like, and he's like, well, did anyone else? And he's like, oh, yeah, lots of men coming in and out. And he's like, well, can you name them? And then he doesn't want to name them. And so I may misremember. This is this is this is my memory of that activity. And so then he puts him in a closet and it's not <laughs> clear that he intended to put him in the closet with a scary looking Christmas decoration. But I guess he spends enough time in the closet that he's really scared and he comes out and then he lists a whole bunch of names. Right. He basically names everybody and anybody. <laughs> yeah. And then and then they sort of find corroborating evidence, but they work. They 
put a lot of they twist a lot of arms to get corroboration right. and so it's not clear how effective that is but like right. i don't know it seemed plausible to me that like mark was saying something true at least at the very least it didn't seem like cromwell made this up out of whole cloth like mark kind of handed it to him sure sure there, there could have been that element to it um you know i could definitely buy that you know maybe mark you know was going around boasting about this but you know does that mean it actually happened i don't i don't know and and that does get to ultimately you know there is no answer to that question and it's definitely sure. not clear yeah. from like the historical record from i guess i really haven't mentioned him so far but i have sort of been thinking about his uh his book about cromwell um macaulay's book um you know he does talk a little bit about this and basically his take on it is that you know henry was essentially uh, th there were these rumors circulating but you know henry at that point in time was basically looking for a way to divorce or you know get, basically get rid of Anne Boleyn. um <laughs> yes and you know there the, were the divorce these... would have been more humane but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah maybe i misspoke there but you know basically he tasked cromwell um and a few other individuals with finding you know corroborating evidence for the rumors that are circulating and there's a very short like period of time from like the initial allegation to conviction and her execution along with a number of other individuals. And, you know, maybe that's evidence of, well, the evidence was just, uh, you know, totally locked up and very convincing, or maybe, you know, it points to it being a sort of rushed, uh, a rushed, uh, sort of rushed to judgment mm -hmm. and, it's sort of fitting in nicely with the king's desire to get rid of Anne Boleyn and to go on and marry um, Jane Seymour. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, true. that's another question. But again, um, like Thomas More, like Henry, you know, again, a strength of Mantell's book is that even though you don't, you don't get in the head of those characters, right? Unlike Cromwell, she does still do a really, I think, good job of, of bringing them to life and making them very compelling characters and like good foils for Cromwell yeah. throughout the book. Yeah, something that also just occurred to me is that I think one of the reasons Cromwell has to be a really perceptive judge of character is because he's the only mind we get to live in. And yeah. so if we're going to learn yeah, actually, things that about is a good point. Yeah. <laughs> what type of person Anne Boleyn is, it means that Cromwell has to be able yeah, to understand to pretty quickly. Insights. Yeah, Right. And so he seems like he knows everything about everyone, or at least can really understand their character just because we need to understand their character. And yeah, we can only do it through him. Yeah. Well, we've been talking now for, gosh, almost an hour. Yeah. Um, so let's wrap this up. Um, yeah. I just wanted to say a couple things. Um, one is that I highly recommend this book, Wolf Hall, as well as the entire series as audiobooks. Um, in well, particular, we were actually... Sorry, you can finish. No, yeah. Were, were you going to say that, okay, one of the difficult things about them as audiobooks is that there are a ton of characters and you might find yeah. that confusing? Yes, it's, it's, it's a very... At least I, I benefited, I think, quite a bit from having read the first book in physical form mm -hmm. and then transitioning to audio. I, I, I agree the audio book is very well read, but without the like character reference guide in the front flap of the hard copy that I read, I would have been much more confused. Yeah, I guess I, I should say that the first time I tried to listen to Wolf Hall, I actually gave up after a few hours because I felt <laughs> like I was just so confused by mainly by keeping track of all the different characters because it goes a pretty lot of quickly people, from and they know, have titles right exactly it's like sometimes they're going to be the earl of norfolk and sometimes they're going to be uncle <laughs> whatever his name is right right exactly right um but having said all that the uh, the narrator ben miles he does a really good job 
Um, I know he he played Cromwell in like the Royal Shakespeare uh, Company production. I think they did like a production of like a combined production of Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. Yeah, they recorded for BBC, didn't they? Um, they might they might well have. Um, and I know also there's like an interview at the end of the third book. There's an interview between Ben Miles and uh, Mantell, and she talks quite you know openly about like how. Uh, seeing Ben Miles like play Cromwell on the stage and also read the character in the books and then ask her questions about Cromwell, actually, uh, it really influenced the way she ended up mm-hmm. writing Cromwell's character in the third book, which I think you know that to me that's just kind of an interesting I guess almost collaboration between like narrator and author, mm-hmm. um, which maybe you don't see that much or hear about that much. Yeah, uh, yeah, it gives him yeah sort of the ability to like read with a lot of depth because uh, yeah. you know I, I trust his like interpretation of emphasis of words and all that kind of thing because he's spent so much time with this story and with the author yeah um i have one final quote to read but before i do that mark do you have anything to add any final wrap-up thoughts uh, uh i don't know I've, I've i've been toying with whether or not to mention how similar this feels to the robert moses trilogy because um, <laughs> it is just really striking to me that it's about this you know, man in history that not a lot of people know about, but became incredibly powerful, starts off with you being pretty sympathetic to him in the first book. And by the third book, he's just like very corrupt and, uh, you know, is not a guy you're rooting for, but is also someone who has these incredible talents. Mm-hmm. Um, and Robert Moses is notable both for being intellectually, you know, a powerhouse and, um, you know, also incredibly uh, able at, for instance, writing legislation that gives him you know, legal <laughs> yeah. powers that no yeah, one else understood or expected. <laughs> it's like the entire yeah. state government didn't seem to see this coming. That's um, right. But then also that he's, you know, physically very impressive, right? That Robert Moses is like a 70 year old man and goes on these long swims and he's like taller and broader than everybody in these rooms <laughs> and this booming voice and just like a very dominating presence. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it, it was just striking to me during the whole course of reading these three books that it felt like these other three books that I read with a very similar focus on, <laughs> a very similar character and, and uh, you know, narrative arc. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it, it goes to that idea of like, it's sort of a great man of history idea, right? That there yeah, are these like is. exceptional individuals that are able to um, have a kind of outsized influence on the course of uh, history or, you know, events. Um, and also like you were saying, yeah, there is, um, for, for Cromwell, there's this rise and fall. And likewise, for um, Moses, there's a rise and fall. Yep. And I think that's what you see with a lot of, uh, you could pick any number of uh, sort of great men and women throughout history, right? That yep. um, they build up power and they build up power. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but eventually they fall. Yeah, and the, I mean, you know, it's a cliche that, you know, the, the power corrupts them, that they yeah. start off idealistic I'll, and then ultimately, you know, it doesn't turn out so I, well. I will say one of the key differences is that um, we're not actually talking about a, a that significant of a time frame for uh, Thomas Cromwell as like a major political actor. Mm. Um, let's see here. Thomas Wolsey dies in 1530. Um, and it's like a few years after that, that, um, Cromwell becomes like an advisor, you know, a principal advisor to Henry VIII. Mm-hmm. Then he dies in 1540. 
it's like maybe eight eight, eight years seven yeah. or eight years right that he spends in like a significant role of power in england that's fair whereas like with robert moses you know one of the incredible things is that it's, <laughs> it's like just 60, like decades 60 years of robert moses yeah it's just like York. decades yeah. and decades of like building power and like even when you think that he's down and out, you know, somehow he's still got, um, you know, levers that he's pulling. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good observation. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I think that's it. I mean, it was, it was, they're, they're great books. Uh, I mean, yeah, obviously the Booker prize committee endorsement is more yeah. influential than and mine. And now that we've endorsed but... them, you know, <laughs> yeah. what else, what else does, you know, anyone need? I, um, I just want to, in terms of like historical fiction, you know, I think not a lot of really good literary novels are written in this style where they're dealing with real characters in history from like a long time ago. Right. Um, and I think, yeah, it's it's she's done something that I haven't really read before in literary historical fiction. Uh, yeah, it's very impressive. She, she and, takes and makes something it really that honestly could be really dull and dry yes. and boring and makes it very interesting and compelling. Yeah. And it's almost, you know, the books are kind of page turners in a way like you, oh, yeah. you really do want to find out like what's going to happen to these characters and who's going to succeed mm-hmm. um yeah so let's just end with this uh this quote that uh hillary mantel <laughs> has uh henry the eighth say at uh, at a certain point to thomas cromwell um so henry laments that there are already too many books in the world there are more every day one man cannot hope to read them all which I think, you know, is a sentiment we can all share. No. Indeed. <laughs> all right, Mark. Well, it's good talking to you. I all love right, talking about, you know, the same book 10 times. Yeah. Well, we get but, slightly more efficient every time. So if we want to do this again, we can probably cut it down to 45 minutes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Well, I'll talk to you later. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey folks, Max here. Thanks for listening to Champs at the Lit. Thanks to Wes Braver for creating our theme music. In our next episode, we will be talking about The Topeka School by Ben Lerner. The Topeka School is a book of autofiction about a young man's last year of high school, the world of competitive speech and debate, the breakdown of language and the ability to communicate, and the Midwestern masculine culture of the late 90s. Please join us for that discussion, and thanks again for listening.